In the middle of the 20th century, we had a great Prime Minister in Australia. He was Sir Robert Menzies. And uh, to us, he was as important as uh, Winston Churchill was to Great Britain. Uh, he was a, a, a fine Presbyterian, a strong Presbyterian, and in the old days when I was editing Australian Presbyterian Life, our national journal, every year we would get a cheque from Sir Robert Menzies with his uh, subscription and, and a substantial donation. And my business manager and I, we always uh, wondered whether we should actually bank it or whether we should frame it and put it on the wall. Um, we ended up banking it, I'm afraid. We needed the money. Um, but uh, um, he was a great Prime Minister. Uh, he led our country in the post-war years. Uh, he uh, presided over a period of growth of Australia, great national growth, uh, some of it through immigration. In those days, Australia welcomed immigrants. Uh, these days, we in the churches are ashamed of uh, the, the national government's policy towards immigration and the way it's administered. Uh, but in those days, uh, immigration helped to make our country strong. Menzies presided over it. Uh, he kept inflation low. He kept employment high. And uh, he took a passion to Canberra, our capital city. Uh, he saw the capital city grow from a medium-sized country town into a large and bustling city. And at the news uh, conference when he announced his resignation, Sir Robert Menzies was asked, Mr Menzies, uh, what do you think of Canberra? He said, Canberra is my pride and joy. And he would have understand how, understood how Paul felt about the church in, in Thessalonia. You are our glory and our joy. Paul had invested a part of his life in the establishment of this church in Thessalonica. Uh, he had kept in touch with it through his own writing, uh, through uh, others who uh, kept bringing the news to him of what was happening there in Thessalonica, had his finger on the button, as we might say. And even though his short mission there uh, at the beginning of his relationship ended rather ingloriously, nevertheless, he had this soft spot for the church in Thessalonica. And why did he have that soft spot? Uh, simply because... He was able to say of them, the Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Think of it, sometimes I feel we don't do Paul justice in our reading of his letter. The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere, is, I think, the way Paul would read that uh, verse. It's a wonderful verse. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. The Lord's message. 
Uh, too often today, people are interested in propagating their own message, aren't they? Uh, we hear of some ministers who uh, read the Sunday paper in the morning before they go to church in order to work out what they're going to say to their people. Disgraceful, really. It's the Lord's message that uh, is given to us to proclaim from the scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments. Uh, this message which is uh, infallibly true, a message that uh, is, uh, if I can find my right place, uh, authoritative uh, to the whole world as God's very message to it, a word that is relevant after thousands of years, a word that is sufficient bringing us all that we need to know for our salvation, faith and life. And uh, any church that is standing on the word of God is standing on solid ground. So it's the Lord's message that rang out from them in Thessalonica. Thessalonica. Uh, the Lord's message rang out uh, evidently the Thessalonians uh, weren't backward in coming forward. They didn't keep it to themselves. Uh, they proclaimed that message wherever God would open up the door for them to proclaim it. Uh, it rang out into Macedonia, just to the north, Achaia, down towards the south, and indeed uh, everywhere. Shades of the Great Commission, aren't there? Going to all the world and preach the gospel, beginning in Jerusalem, going out in ever-increasing circles to the ends of the earth. And their faith became known everywhere. What a wonderful thing it is when a church is known for its faith. There are some words that are bywords in the Christian world. If I say 10th, what do you think of? 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia where uh, Donald Barnhouse, uh, James Montgomery Boyce administered uh, and built up that church as a church strong in its faith, in biblical faith. If I say the tabernacle, or I must confess I went this morning, if I say the tabernacle, you know the place I'm referring to. And my prayer is that if I say LCPC, time will soon come when people everywhere will know what we mean. So there are certain words that are bywords of faith. And uh, Thessalonica was one of those places to which Paul wrote these two letters of affirmation and encouragement affirmation and encouragement. It would be worth going home and reading these letters yourself after church because if there are two things that, in my opinion, Presbyterian churches badly need, it is affirmation and encouragement. We went through a period in our church in the 1970s that was very difficult for us. Uh, Ecumenism was raging and the Methodist Church set out to join with 
the Presbyterian and the Congregational churches. <coughs> they succeeded in garnering two-thirds of the Presbyterian church and three-quarters of the Congregational churches. There's a continuing Presbyterian church, that's us. There are continuing Congregational churches in two uh, groupings, uh, fellow Congregational churches and the Federation of Congregational Churches. And there are just one or two Methodist congregations that stayed out of that church union. But in the lead-up to it, the propaganda war heated up. Uh, They said to us, you'll just be a rump. They said to us, the rest of the church won't want to have anything to do with you. They said to us, you know, the church in Canada that survived a union in 1925, it has been on the decline ever since. Well, my wife and I went to Canada on the strength of that to see what the case really was, and uh, we weren't all that happy with the Presbyterian Church in Canada. Unfortunately, it hadn't us to its uh, guns as far as the uh, Reformed faith, biblical faith, was concerned, but it certainly hadn't withered on the vine. I I imagine you have heard of Archbishop Sir Marcus Lone. He was the great Archbishop of the Sydney Diocese. And uh, just when the propaganda war was at its height, nobody would have anything to do with us. Uh, Sir Marcus Lone got in touch with us and he said, would you like to send your students for the ministry to Moore College? He said, you can send them there and and they'll do the, the course. That's a sort of a core sort of thing for any minister, and and you can teach Presbyterian specifics to them. And by the way, would you like to use our Sunday school curriculum uh, and our Scripture in Schools commission uh, cu- uh, curriculum? And not only that, would you like to make use of our evangelism department? Well, would we? We were greatly affirmed by that man. Uh, affirmation, so important of us uh, uh, to, to, in, to affirm fellow Christians uh, that wherever the word of God is truly preached, uh, we want to have fellowship there with those churches and we want to affirm for the sake of the word and for the sake of the extent kingdom of God our fellow Christians in such places uh, and encouragement. This is something that uh, Presbyterians, in my opinion, need to have much more of. We're bidden in Scripture to encourage one another, and all the more so as we see the day drawing nigh. Well, back in the year 1994, what is now my church, St Kilda Presbyterian Church in Melbourne, had been a troubled place. There was a man in it who was just a criminal, Uh, taking money off little old ladies, um, spinning great tales about what had happened to him and how he was down on his luck. Not that I use the word myself if I can help it. But uh, he was really a rogue. And he caused all sorts of trouble for the church. Eventually it got so troublous that the presbytery just decided to uh, close it. So on the Sunday before Easter, 
1994, they had a closing service. About 40 people from olden times had come along to uh, assist in the closing of the church. Now, I'm not one for closing churches. Uh, if I hear of a church that's going to close, I do everything I can to encourage them to stay open. Uh, but I, when I, I was editing New Life full-time, and a couple of the ladies at St Kilda subscribed to New Life, and they rang me up and said, we suppose you don't have anything to do on Sundays. Well, I did have plenty to do on Sundays, but I'd just finished the stint as, uh, in, as a supply minister in one of our churches that inducted a minister the previous week. They said, would you come and give us Easter services? Oh, I said, I couldn't, I don't think, because the presbytery closed it down last week. Uh, oh, please come, give us services on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Um, so I rang the former interim moderator and uh, I said to him, you know, they've asked me if I'd take services there, what do you think? He greatly encouraged me. He said, oh, I don't suppose it'll do any harm. But nevertheless, I, I took it on. And it didn't do any harm. We discovered that we had money to uh, support a minister. And they said to me, well, you know, uh, what about you? And I'd been moving commas and fixing up spelling mistakes and things for about 15 years and I uh, really did feel like getting back into the ministry. So I was uh, uh, inducted there and we've gone on, not exactly from strength to strength, but up and down and the Lord has his people there. St Kilda is part of the Jewish area of uh, Melbourne. It's also the red light area of Melbourne um, it also has a lot of show folk uh, from around Melbourne uh, and it also has a lot of criminals who gather in Melbourne. So we don't have all that big a constituency of the kind of people who normally populate a Presbyterian church. But the Lord encourages us sufficient to keep it going. We need to encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing nigh. Paul noted that uh, the Thessalonians had been at work. We continually remember before God and our Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful description of a church, isn't it? Would that your church and my church, any church, could be noted for these things. And you notice right at the beginning, of course, that uh, faith precedes work. Work is by faith, not the other way around. And uh, our labour proceeds from the love we have 
to God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And we're able to endure, endure because we have this hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul uh, always gets things in the right order, doesn't he? And he had eyes open to what was happening uh, in the church in Thessalonica. And, of course, God has his eyes open to us and to all the churches. Uh, I love the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Uh, Did my exit thesis on them. Preached through them at least three times. Each time the series got longer and longer. In the providence of God was able to do something that I dearly hoped for for many, many years, was able to go on a tour of the seven churches, taking in things like Nicaea as well, and of course for an Aussie, Gallipoli, and uh, the Anzacs and all those things. Uh, and God in his providence and mercy made that available to me. Uh, and then more recently again, uh, as I went to a conference of Sat7, the television gospel ministry that uh, has a satellite with a footprint all over the Middle East. And uh, it's constantly um, uh, um, broadcasting the gospel and bringing people into the kingdom. Uh, so after their conference, we took off on another tour of the seven churches. Well, these things were undergirded by something. They were undergirded by the faithful proclamation of the gospel that Paul had given them during his brief visit there and while he kept in touch with them. Uh, he undergirded their faith. And he was a great faith builder, was the Apostle Paul. I love reading his letters uh, because there we, we find so much of the faith teased out uh, we see so much encouragement of his fellow Christians. We see wonderful prayers. Ever want to know how to pray? Because the prayers of Jesus are a model for us, but uh, the prayers of the Apostle Paul are not far behind. And uh, he prayed for all these places and for all their needs. And undergirding his proclamation was the word of God itself. Uh, that was the great subject of Paul's ministry, preaching Christ through preaching the word. And as it happens, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write quite a few uh, things about the word of God. Uh, here in chapter 2 and verse 13, he commends them because they accepted it uh, not as the word of man, but as what it was, the word of God. Now, a man who preaches faithfully the scriptures will from time to time be confronted in a situation, often a pastoral situation, in which the person says, oh, it's only your opinion. Our church in Australia went through a terrible half-century of liberalism and uh, we only came out of it uh, in 1977 when that uniting church was formed 
and we found that in a congregation where there had been a succession of Bible-believing ministers, there was very little of that sort of thing. Where there'd been a succession of liberal ministers, it was just your opinion. Now, Paul would dismiss that thought. The word of God is not just his opinion. The word of God is what it is, the word of God. And the Thessalonians took that to heart in, uh, in their handling and their treatment of that word. And as it happens, as I say, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write quite a few things about uh, the word of God. As 2.13, that it is not the word of man. In other words, what the Bible says is what God says. And uh, it takes a, a good deal of faithful preaching to convince people of that fact. It's a great fact, but uh, people sinfully don't want to see it as the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, uh, of course, one of, one of his favorite, uh, famous um, uh, words about Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Wonderful to uh, listen to uh, a sermon where the minister is, is taking that as the way in which he handles God's word of truth and puts substance into the message that uh, he's proclaiming. And then again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, chapter 5 um, he says something else about the word of God. Uh, I'll leave Colossians 3.16 out of the reckoning tonight, but uh, there again he uh, speaks about the word of God. So he had a highly developed sense of what the word of God uh, was. And we find that there are actually four great aspects of the word of God, important to Paul, important to us, important in every age, that the word of God is absolutely true. It's the infallible word of God. And uh, I believe that in our day and generation, people are without excuse if they don't see it that way. Because the Bible has been firmed in so many ways. I had an associate editor in uh, New Life called Dr. Clifford Wilson. And he was an amazing man. He had, uh, he was one of these men who knew everything about everything. But he particularly specialised in archaeology. And I only had to, if we got something to put in the paper about archaeology, some of the things the editor wants to check pretty carefully, I only had to say to him, uh, Cliff, what about this? And oh, he'd be able to explain it to me, he'd be able to put it in its context, he'd be able to say whether it was a worthy thing or not. Um, but over and over again, the, the Bible stands out as being true. One of the things I, I love about the... Uh, the turning away from the liberal era has to do with Thessalonica itself. Um, 
Luke uses the word polytarch to describe city officials. And somebody put forward the view that the word polytarch never appeared anywhere else in Greek literature. So there was only one conclusion you could draw from that. Luke must have made it up. And then you could draw further conclusions from, from that about how reliable he was as a historian. Uh, well, that all blew away one day when beside the Appian Way, just out of Thessalonica, uh, they discovered a big foundation stone and on it was the word polytarch. So it did occur in Greek literature and in fact it was carved in stone. We're, uh, we're without excuse if in our hearts of heart we don't believe the absolute truth of Scripture. And uh, I, Howard Marshall, uh, said of Luke, incidentally, uh, that he was a historian of the highest order. Uh, well, not only is it absolutely true, but uh, it is completely authoritative. Uh, we don't, as Bible-believing Christians, put ourselves in authority over the Scriptures. We place ourselves under the authority of the Scriptures. And we say to obey the commands of God. They're not the ten good suggestions, they're the ten commandments and everything that flows from them. And when we do accept the authority of the word of God, we find great blessing uh, in our lives. It's abidingly relevant. Uh, there are plenty of people around today who will say, oh, you know, the Bible should be confined to history because it's no longer relevant. This is the 21st century and we live in the world grown up. Oh, do we? Um, it's as relevant as ever it was. Uh, sometimes I read Romans 1, for instance, and I'm tempted to run my finger over the page to see if the ink is dry because it is so relevant to the world of our day and it is all sufficient. God tells us all that we need to know for our salvation, faith and life. So it's a precious book, a precious word, a precious memory, a precious, sorry, I'm still suffering from the flu, um, a, a precious message that we are to proclaim as God's ministers and people throughout the world. Call me a fundamentalist if you will. Um, but uh, I'll, wear, I'll wear it with pride because uh, the world has had a habit of uh, giving nicknames to Bible-believing Christians. Lollards, Puritans, Enthusiasts, Methodists, Fundamentalists. It's the current swear word regarding the, the, the church in the 21st century. Wear it with pride. And well, in that spirit then, the word went forth in power from Thessalonica. Now, I am conscious, preaching in this church on this day, of the events that happened almost on this very spot on the 24th of May, 1738. 
I love the big brass plaque up there outside the London Museum. Uh, I even went in there the other day and offered to buy them a bottle of Brasso so they could make it uh, legible again. And the young man was very nice and he said he'd look into it and he thought that he'd be able to get it cleaned up. Very good. Uh, but what a wonderful event took place on that day. John Wesley had got back from America, a dismal failure, gone there, he said, to convert the Red Indians, but then he said, but who will convert me? He knew that though he was a minister of the Church of England, there was something missing in his life. Uh, he'd kept uh, 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 regular hours of prayer and devotion, Bible reading, but somehow or other it hadn't clicked. And uh, he woke up on this morning, as you no doubt know, but I'll go through it again. It's one of my favourite events of church history. Woke up in the morning and opened his Bible and he fixed upon those words, he hath given unto us his exceeding great and precious promises. A little while later, uh, he opened it again and his eyes fixed on the verse that says, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And he went around here to St Paul's Cathedral to Evensong and the choir sang Psalm 67, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. I believe that God had his hand on that man that day in a special way he came to somewhere near here and went to the Moravian Mission Meeting and uh, those famous words he wrote in his diary as someone was reading Luther's preface to the Romans, I felt my heart strangely warmed and I did feel that I, uh, I had been saved from the law of sin and death. And wondrously, uh, he became a new man in Christ that night. Brother Charles had had that experience two nights before and what would Charles Wesley do after an experience like that but go home and write a hymn? And uh, we know the hymn very well. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me for him to death pursued. Oh, and, and what happened as a result? The word of God rang out from here into all the world. And uh, Ian Murray has written a wonderful book about the history of evangelical work in Australia and another one about the work in New Zealand. Uh, in which he details so much of what the Methodist preachers did on horseback going out to the far reaches of the various states and leaving us Presbyterians in their wake. But they went out and the message went out and the Methodist church became very strong uh, in much of New South Wales. Sadly, it weakened again, this church union, 
It was a terrible thing. I've mentioned it earlier, but uh, uh, we kept out of it because it wasn't a scriptural basis of union. And we endured all sorts of insults on that account. On the 22nd of June 1977, when that church was inaugurated, its first president was a man called J. Davis McKackie. And in his sermon, he said, he referred to studiously, deliberately, the legend of virgin birth. And in that moment, we knew that we were justified for the stand we took, the legend of the virgin birth, on the very night that that church was inaugurated. Now, there are some good people in the Uniting Church, and I don't mean to bag it, but uh, I think people ought to have their eyes opened to the way in which liberalism works at... Uh, destroying the faith of the people of God. Uh, well, as I say, I'm conscious of this day as I preach to you tonight. And uh, what about us today? The Methodist revival, what, 300-odd years ago. Things are different now, aren't they, to what they were back then. I don't know whether you've all seen Dr. Dallimore's biography of George Whitfield, but in the introduction and the opening chapter, Dallimore gives a little vignette of what life was like in England in those days. The gin craze was at its highest. We used to learn at school about the, the gin houses around London who used to advertise get drunk for a halfpenny, dead drunk for a penny, clean straw for nothing. This terrible fixation, alcohol, and the destruction that it wrought. The gambling craze, how fortunes were lost on the turn of a card. And look at the gambling that happens today. People build these casinos and uh, it robs people. They rob people of their money. Uh, think of the uh, lawlessness, Sir Mob, the, the crowds of people who uh, broke all the laws. You just think of the way they treated the Methodists. You know, you have pictures of them throwing rotten tomatoes and dead cats and playing trumpets and drums to disrupt the teaching of the Methodists who just plugged on in spite of it. Uh, well, was it different then to what it is today? I say no. Things are just as bad today as they were back then. And we need God to act in an extraordinary way in our world today. We need him to send down his spirit upon us. Uh, we need him to raise up a new group of men. Dalimore says, what manner of men will they be whom the great king and head of his church will rise up? Raise up. They will be men mighty in the scriptures.
They will be men who have no regard for the adulation of this world uh, if only they have the approbation of their God. And we will see signs and wonders following. Yes, uh, and where was the church in those days in all this? Lost and dead in moderatism, uh, seeking respectability, believing in deism, some vague notion of a God uh, who was remote from his world. Yes, Dalibor puts his finger on it. It's a great book. It's well worth reading. So we must pray for such men to be raised up again. You know, I was standing in front of the statue of John Wesley at St Paul's Cathedral in the garden there one day and a couple of Americans came along and, oh, who is this? Uh, So I went up to them and I said, you know, this is one of the greatest men who ever lived. Oh, who is that? John Wesley. He was the founder of the Methodist Church. Oh, they said, we're Methodists. I didn't even know about John Wesley. And just what those two brothers, John and Charles, and their friend, George Whitfield, and uh, the men in Wales, and Jonathan Edwards in America, what this handful of men were enabled to do by our great God, the King and Head of the Church. Oh, may it be that again... There will be a spirit of affirmation and encouragement amongst us for all of those from whom the message rings out into all the world to the honour and the glory of God. And may God bless you, Andy and Catherine and your elders and deacons and every one of you. I've noticed year by year that this church has grown and I praise God for it. And praise God for the faithful ministry in this place where Methodism began. And uh, may he uh, uh, send his spirit upon his whole church. Convict us of the truth of his word. See it for what it is, not the word of man, but the word of God. Accept it, believe it, live by it, obey it. And uh, what wonders will he do through the church? in our day. May it be. Let's pray.